This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, my mom, who is also a psychiatrist, her funny phrase, the way she puts it is, you have until they're 12 to brainwash them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And yeah. hopefully they have, you know, taken the values that you think are important and really learned them because then, you know, they're really spending most of their time off in the world making their own decisions and, and they'll make some bad ones. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Screaming on the Inside, the Unsustainability of American Motherhood with our guest, Jessica Gross. Jess is an opinion writer at the New York Times who writes a popular newsletter on parenting. She was the founding editor of Lenny, the email newsletter and website, and also writes about women's health, culture, politics, and grizzly bears. She was named one of LinkedIn's Next Wave Top Professionals 35 and under in 2016 and a glamour game changer in 2020 for her coverage of parenting in the pandemic. She's the author of the novels Soulmates and Sad Death Salad. Jess was formerly a senior editor at Slate and an editor at Jezebel. And her work has appeared in the New York Times, New York, the Washington Post, Business Week, Elle, Cosmopolitan, and many other publications. Her new book, which we are diving into today, is Screaming on the Inside. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and daughters. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So just first a few, I want to give you a few process comments as I was reading your book. Two things that were screaming at me. <laughs> and that is one was I already had a ton of respect for my wife and my mother. Now even more, if that was possible. Oh, I love that. And two, as an involved... I, I know the stresses of being an involved father in this day and age. And given... Without all of the historical and institutional pressure of fatherhood, I know what that feels like as a father, without mm -hmm. all of the other baggage and pressure that comes into it for women. And again, also put things just in such perspective of, like, how did this thing get so stacked? Like, how did this game get so stacked? And why are we just, well, 
we're not just starting to talk about it because as you found out through all of your research of hundreds of letters and um, looking, you know, people have been talking about difficulties of motherhood and parenthood for a long time. It just seems to be in a in a cavern. And now because of the work of you and others, we're trying to scream this out loud to everyone to say, this is what's really going on, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I so appreciate you're reading it and having those revelations. And I think exactly what you said is right. I focused on moms because of all of those external pressures and ideas about what a quote unquote good mother should be. I think fatherhood has its own challenges and its own pressures. Um, but there's less of that external Mm -hmm. noise. Um, and I think, for the moms I spoke to for this book in particular, there just was this overwhelming feeling that they couldn't win no matter what they did. It was like if they stayed home, if they worked, if they, you know, if they sleep trained, if they didn't sleep train. I mean, I think a lot of the pressures and stressors are really amplified in early motherhood, especially, you know, making that transition from not being a parent to being a parent. Um, and also before your kids can talk and give you mm-hmm. feedback about what they need and what they want. Um, and that's really an important takeaway of the book too, mm-hmm. uh, is that our kids are all amazing individuals and we only have so much control over who they're going to be. Um, mm-hmm. We can provide basic structure and love and support, um, but we can't mold them beyond, you know, trying to give them our values. Uh, my mom, who is also a psychiatrist, right. uh, her funny phrase, the way she puts it is, you have until they're 12 to brainwash them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And hopefully they have, you know, taken the values that you think are important and really learn them Mm -hmm. because then, you know, they're really spending most of their time off in the world making their own decisions and and they'll make some bad ones. That's it's and that's, I think, both relieving and terrifying to hear for parents that absolutely (laughs) wait a second, I only have this much time and then they're just going to be who they're going to be. But at the same time and some and some cultures and religions even talk about the year of seven, which is mm. really young in terms of like the values that you instill in in your child, um, which feels young to me. But even so, it's this double-edged sword of we're responsible and yet we have to be aware of the reality of that we can't control this stuff. But to your, you know, all of in, in your work and your research and social media and influencers, all this pressure, like that's not what we're given. We're not given the information that your mom is giving us. Like, no. hey, we're given like you do all of this stuff and do all of this stuff well, and then you will have this beautifully perfect, successful child. Right. And I think that there's a lot of self-blame that happens because there's a feeling that if anything goes wrong, health-wise you know, psychologically wise with your children, it's your fault. You did mm-hmm. something wrong. It was your influence, your negative influence, or because you didn't do X the right way that your child has turned out in this way that other people may perceive as not ideal. Uh, and in so many cases, that just couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it it's so much bigger, too, than I think just parenting. Um 
I think I think a lot about, um, you know, the environment that we are raising our kids in and how we're so responsible for our children's health. But if you lived in Jackson, Mississippi for the past year, you don't even have access to clean drinking water. And so mm-hmm. how are you supposed to raise healthy children when you have you can't even have this basic thing? And mm-hmm. that's so beyond your control. That's not your fault. And it mm-hmm. just I, that sort of fact and that sort mm-hmm. of thinking just reveals the absurdity of the the individualized pressures that moms feel. Right. Because so much of it it's not just with our kids and and who they become is not fully under our control. I mean, it is somewhat, I'm not suggesting that parenting doesn't matter at all. It does. It's just not everything. Um, But also the environment around us. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really outside our control. And when you talk about, you know, the focus on just physical health um, as what you're talking about in Jackson, right? Like just physical health, let alone emotional, psychological, mental health. Mm -hmm. And then I think back, of all of your research and, and all of the books and the articles that were out, you know, it was really this whole motherhood. It was child rearing and it was based on, you know, how do you medically physically take care of your child? And then as mortality, the birth rates were going down and down and down, everything started to shift from, you know, having lots of kids, just keeping them alive, keeping the mothers alive. Um, mm-hmm. And in some places, that wasn't a huge priority, as you point out, yeah. right? Like, and, and so over time, it's just been this shift of, you know, having kids to rearing them to parenting them. It's like there's this shift that's happened over the last few, well, century, really. Yeah, I mean, well, there, I mean... I don't focus too much on this in the book. There's a lot of wonderful books about this sort of creation of childhood. I mean, childhood was not thought of as a distinct phase. Mm. Um, hundreds of years ago, children were put to work basically as right. soon as they could walk. <laughs> they had a job if in the colonial era. They were, you know, getting eggs from the chickens, doing something in the house or the farm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not, you know... It's the the sociological phrase is concerned cultivation. They mm. were not cultivated as individual perfect flowers. They were working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that, I mean, we had to create child labor laws in the 20th century so that we weren't putting them to work in the factory and we were letting them have compulsory education. And so you would think that once, you know, survival for most people wasn't the main concern, we would sort of loosen up we could, mm-hmm. you know, expand our definition of what a good mother is or what a good mother does. And instead, we just seem to pile more expectations on on the on this pile of things that was already so big to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not even though I go through all of the history in the book, I'm not even sure why that happened. Um, I think consumer culture is part of it, because if you are feeling insecure about it, we can just tell you to buy something else that'll fix all your problems. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think social media today certainly pay, plays a part in feelings of inadequacy and expectations. Uh, there's so many sort of uh, different reasons. I think part of it is certainly backlash about women having more power in society, being in the workforce, um, putting more expectations on them as they are having more roles certainly uh, mm-hmm. is one aspect, but it's so many things in combination. So as a journalist, um, 
who has covered these and related topics for years, um, putting this into a, a, a scientific book with historical roots merged with a memoir. Um, I just heard your voice throughout, and um, I, I just want to say that how much it impacts all of the people who are out there, all the listeners, all of the readers, to to hear honesty and gut-wrenching, painful honesty from someone in a place of um, of expertise. And so, I first of all, thank you for that. And and oh, what was you. that process? Was that a difficult process for you? Um. Well. There's a I, there's a chapter uh, where I talk about my pregnancy with my older daughter, which was quite difficult. I had yeah. hyperemesis, which is extreme morning sickness, so I couldn't hold any food down. I got tremendously depressed and anxious, um, and I ended up having to leave a job. Uh, and I thought my career was over, done for. Uh, and so, my when I first started uh, writing the book. My older daughter was probably eight. She's 10 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so reliving that that moment of my life was not fun. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. However, mm-hmm. I think writing it, I don't think I would have been able to write it any earlier uh, in my parenting journey because I hadn't really processed it. Um, right. And I, I think writing about that difficult time was actually quite cathartic, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard, but it was, I think, worthwhile because I was able to really let go of the feelings of failure that I had living through that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, reporting and talking to all of these women and looking at all the history and the international comparisons um, – it wasn't my fault. And I think I felt a great deal as I was living through it. I certainly felt ashamed mm-hmm. and I felt humiliated. I all, all sorts of negative feelings and that I wouldn't be, a, you know, how could I be a good mother if um, I was so, I couldn't even handle being pregnant. Um, right. But it, that, you know, biological functions are not your fault. Right. Um, again, it sounds absurd to say that out loud, but um, you know, no, it's quite obvious. Needs to be said, right? Yes. Um, and so even while that part in particular was not that fun to, to write, I think it was really good for mm-hmm. me to have written it. And mm-hmm. for the rest of it, um, you know, anything that I'm writing about um, is sort of selectively revealing. Mm-hmm. Um, I only share things that I feel comfortable sharing and that mm-hmm. I feel happy to talk about. I don't feel strange about people knowing about me. I don't think there are anything to be ashamed of. Um, there's a lot I don't share. Um, And so I think that's sort of for anyone sharing in any sort of public format. I just think that's always sort of a a really important distinction to draw for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, will I feel comfortable with everybody knowing this business about me? Right. (laughs) And so, you know, I think I'm not ashamed at all to talk about prenatal depression. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to talk about it. Um, I think it's really important to talk about, you know, um, what else is sort of personal in the book? Um, early motherhood and and feeling like you don't necessarily belong with other moms. You know those ideas. Right. Um, right. I think are just totally important to talk about, and I, yeah. I don't struggle to talk about them at all. Well, you start the book starts with, "I failed at ideal motherhood before I even had a child. I felt as if I had ruined it." all by the time I was six weeks pregnant with my oldest daughter, right? Like right off the gates, it's like this thing. 
and, and then you do you go right into the challenges with not only like the physical um all of the um the nausea and um just all, all all the physically that was happening to you and then and i think this is really important i'm glad you said this and particularly as a mom as a psychiatrist with the mom as a psychiatrist you went off your antidepressants for lots of different reasons and lots of different messages that are out there about medicines and being wholly present and you know being this complete healthy vessel for this child because it's all on you and then you find out there is a huge 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 relapse rate percentage for women who go off of antidepressants when they're pregnant and that would have been really good to know yeah i wish i had known i wish anybody had told me that the relapse rate was um the research I cite in the book is as high as 68%, but um, I was doing an event in Texas with Pooja Lakshman, who is a, a perinatal psychiatrist. She's amazing. She has a new book coming out called Real Self-Care. Um, and she told me that more re recent research suggests that it may be as high as 75%, mm. um, which is not to say, I mean, this is the thing that everyone needs to know about medication in any circumstance is that you should be doing a risk and benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. And I think I had to do this recently when my younger daughter and I had the flu. Um, I was considering whether I should take Tamiflu. And I had a conversation with my doctor and, you know, they, we talked it through and it just seemed like the risks of that medication were not worth the benefit that I might get from a day or two of shortened illness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, with pregnant women, we often over rotate on risk um, because, you know, obviously that is a very um, complicated calculation to make when there is also a fetus involved. So mm -hmm. I don't, um, I I don't mean to suggest that that calculation is easy for anyone, but there are risks to going off medication just as there are risks to staying on them. And mm -hmm. I and I want to have that. I want for all people to be able to have that full conversation when they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the risks of being really depressed during your pregnancy are the same risks as staying on, are very similar risks to staying on antidepressant medication. It's like risk of low birth weight rate, risk of, you know, slight risk of prematurity. It's all the same risks. So, yeah. you know, right. you got to make that calculation with your caregivers. Um, mm -hmm. and it's never an easy one, but, um, I would love for more people to be able to make it without just feeling so bad about themselves. And that's, that's one of your main points about, um, mothers is just being made to feel bad and blamed and the G word feeling guilty just all the time, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, one piece of it, of advice that I, I tried to talk about a lot and that I've taken away from the reporting and the conversations I've had around this book, you're not going to be able to never feel guilty because you're a human being, right? Everybody feels guilty sometimes. Mm -hmm. What this work has allowed me to do is anytime I feel guilty about anything around my motherhood, um, I sit with it. I don't take any actions and I try to ask myself, is does this affect my relationship with my children mm -hmm. or my what I'm doing in the community? And 
what would be helpful to the community? And if the answer to both those questions is no, I really am more able to put that guilt aside and say, this isn't my values. It's somebody else's values, and that's great. We don't all have the same values, and we shouldn't have all the same values. But uh, it really has been allowed me to let go of guilt more easily. Mm. You can't not have the feeling, but maybe you can let go of it. Right. That is wisdom, everyone. Do you hear that? (laughs) Ask, sit with it, ask the questions, and then try to let it go. Because so much of this is this societal pressure and as you point out, which we'll talk about some of the influencers and this the mom blog culture that's out there, it's it's not reflective of re generally not reflective of a possible sustainable reality. And it really only makes everyone most people who are watching feel bad. Mm-hmm. Unless it just feel bad and feel guilty that you're not that. Um in terms of history, because I just loved learning about the historical, um, the, the the historical significant touch points that really made significant changes. Um, well, not changes. Will continue to make the changes in the non-desired direction. One was the transition in the in the mid eighteen hundreds. The transition from female midwives to hospital based male obstetricians, and that was huge. Yeah. So much knowledge was lost. Um, and I think, and again, not, I, I'm not here to demonize the medical profession. I had a birth, a hospital birth with an epidural that I loved, did it twice. So, (laughs) (laughs) but certainly at the beginning, um, there just was so much rejection of any sort of just decades of knowledge and support that women were getting during childbirth. And uh, this idea that women and their knowledge had no place in childbirth um, was really so damaging. And in a lot of ways, we're still feeling the after effects of it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to fast forward. There's so much here in the history Um well, let me fast forward to uh, the Depression and World War II when women were um, were needed to work outside the home, which then created when when all those it just created so many double standards. Like you're needed here, but then also you don't count over there, right? It, it was yeah. it you you couldn't get credit for helping sustain our economy during two of the most challenging times to date in our American history. And yet at the same time, you're doing what you need to do, but it's still not enough. And we're not going to count you once this is over. Like, how do you, how do you see that as you, as you look back on this research and now see it from our modern eyes? How do I, I mean, I think we still struggle um, to treat women as equal. I mean, That sounds simplistic, but it's obviously true. And I think we have a lot of baggage about moms and what they should be doing and their roles. Um, But I mean, in in previous eras, there really was always just such a determined pushback um, to women taking what was perceived to be men's roles in society and earning money and having their own say-so in life. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I particularly think a lot about that post-World War II period um, when 
And there's been so much written about the pronatalist post-war push and women needed to be back in the kitchen. They had gone out to work in the factories. Um, it was the one time where we had federally funded childcare um, mm-hmm. so that women could work in the, in the factories. Um, and there just was such a huge societal backlash. And it, what's sort of amazing is that it couldn't stop progress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you saw women getting more education. I mean, now women outnumber men in college, which, mm-hmm. you know, maybe isn't so great, but that's a discussion right. for another time. Yeah. Um, once they were allowed legally and culturally to get education, to earn their own money, they wanted that mm-hmm. in the world. And so despite the sort of many ways in which uh, there was pushback against them, I mean, uh, what I talk about in the book um, is the way at the time women were blamed for their children's psychological struggles or, or neurological differences. So yes. um, a really ugly moment mid-century was when women, if their children w- had autism, mothers were blamed and told that it was their fault because they were too cold. Yep. Refrigerator mothers was right. the uh, right. Express the the colloquial way that they were referred to, um, and we still see the residue of that today. Um, that sort of mother for sure, day. for sure. And also, as I was reading that part, I was thinking with schizophrenia. Um, when mm-hmm. I was in grad, when I was in graduate school, the schizophrenogenic mothers, a sim- you know, a different version of the refrigerator mother, being responsible for what we now know to be a neurobiological issue. Right? Yeah, well, I, yeah. I think I put this in the book. My mom was had morning sickness during her psychiatric residency, and she her advisor told her it was just transference. <laughs> and she and and at the oh. time she was like, "That is nonsense." She that knew that is um, nuts. But that was 1978. You know, right. that's not so long ago. That's not very long ago. No, that is nuts. Oh my gosh. And and around the same time when I was looking back at the messages that I remember growing up about women and this was the time when you know m- more and more women are um in the professional workforce and being full-time moms, right? Two full-time jobs and this famous commercial which I still remember vividly, I can bring home the bacon, I can fry it up in a pan and it was like it was the epitome of I can do it all with a smile and a flip. And everyone mm-hmm. looks great and I'm happy and thriving. And like that, we all believed it. I mean, like that that made sense to me. I watched it. It's like, it's so, it's so unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I do, one of the points that I'm, I make in the book is that I really would like more acceptance of moms having a range of emotions about everything and having ambivalence, which is huge in the psychological Mm -hmm. literature, which doesn't mean you, it means that you have very strong feelings in many different directions. Mm -hmm. And moms have those feelings because humans have these feelings and they are humans. But there is this idea that motherhood should be transformative and that you should be some sort of different category of better angelic person once you have children. And that is not realistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are still the same person. Mm-hmm. You just have a kid now. And certainly there there are things about you that change, but your humanity doesn't. No. And um, 
I think things can be enhanced through the parenthood experience for sure. And things are, can definitely be harder and more stressful. It's, it's all of it. Yeah. And I never want to over rotate on, you know, I I've had this discussion a lot. The book is called screaming on the inside, which is meant to be tongue in cheek, but sometimes people take it too seriously and they're like, it's too negative about the experience of parenting. And, Mm. um, I really try to say in the book and, and when I'm talking about it, I love being a mom. It is the best thing I ever did. And I don't think that talking about the hard parts negates or detracts from the beautiful, joyful, amazing parts that we experience every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think painting a fuller picture is beneficial to everyone. Um, and so, I mean, I yeah. joke. Yeah. My, it's from a rational point of view, it's bonkers that I had a second child because my first pregnancy <laughs> was so hard. It was so hard. Um, and I, I love being a mom. I loved, you know, I actually loved babies, which I think is, you know, not everybody loves babies. Um, mm-hmm. but I really love having babies. I miss having babies. So I think we just need to talk about all of the feelings surrounding mm-hmm. parenthood. Um, and I think that I'm hopeful that I hope my book can be a small part of that discussion. I completely agree. And I think, uh, first of all, I personally found it very real. I didn't, I didn't find it negative at all. It's just very real. And I do think the realness can also be hard for some people to hear too, depending on what their own situation is and how they are own their own mindset about their situation, because we all have different coping mechanisms, right? As, as humans to make sense of our world. And sometimes it's validating for people to hear, wow, this is really hard for other people too. And sometimes I think it could be overwhelming to consider that aspect of life, which is very real, but sometimes it's just kind of put away and you put your head down. Yeah. Um, so I'm not surprised that you would sometimes get that, but um, I, I have found in my work as well, the more people hear about the whole gamut of the human parenting child-rearing experience, they feel more validated and they actually feel less guilty and less bad because most people are in their own little closets or bathrooms or cars, as you point, crying out, crying in one of your, uh, one of your articles of just like, I am the worst person in the world. I can't Mm -hmm. handle this. What's wrong with me? And then you realize, oh, this is actually kind of normal. Other people experience this as well. Um, I, that was one of the revelations I had reading the old diaries and letters was that women were writing in like 1860 about how hard early motherhood was in particular. And they were, I can't sleep. My husband's not helping. I wish I could go to, a. am going to get the exact quote wrong, but some one woman wrote, I wish I could go to a lodge somewhere in the vast wilderness where the cry of babies might never reach me more. And this is a spa. A, they were looking for a spa. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a woman in like 1847. Um, wow. So I found that these feelings 
our forever feelings, mm -hmm. whatever the circumstance, um, yeah. tremendously helpful um, in normalizing what we go through today. Because I think that there is exactly as you put it, there's just this way we get siloed. Mm -hmm. um, and we think we're the only ones who are struggling. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and I think it's just so important, especially for, you know, my kids are six and 10 now. Um, and it's, you go through so many different periods with your children. And that's really hard to see when you have babies mm -hmm. and really little kids because the work of that is just so relentless. Mm -hmm. um, it's really rewarding too, but it just feels never ending in a way. Yes. Um, right. Relentless <laughs> um, is a good word. That's a really good word for it. Yeah. But it's, I, I mean, again, I would never, if you had told me when my kids were one and four, I was never so tired in my life as when my kids were one and four. The little one woke up every day between 4.30 and 5.30. Mm -hmm. And she was so cute. She was like not, she was in a great mood. She was just like, I'm here. Ready I'm to go. Now. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and if you would have told me that five years from then, I would miss that. I would have been like, are you out of your dang mind? I would, how can you? I miss right. it? I right. miss having those babies. Um, right. So, you know, they're just, it, it, it feels like it can you're never going to get out of specific mom difficult moments with your kids. And everybody has different right. difficult moments, you know? Right. I mean, I've talked to people who were like, my kids were easy until they were teenagers. And that was really hard. Or, you know, toddlerhood was just impossible for me. Everybody is right. going to have their time when yes. things are really hard. Yes. Um, and it's not forever. It is not. We uh, we had very long bedtime rituals that developed <laughs> with our kids over the years. And it was exhausting. I mean, it was exhausting. We were exhausted by the end of the yeah. day. And then you had three kids to tag team in what order. And anytime you try to skip a step of the story reading or the patting of the back or humming or saying like whatever the thing that developed over time, it would just become like, like, why did I even try doing that? And my wife and I'd be like, oh my gosh, when are we going to get it to sit down and just actually talk or watch a show or go to bed? And we would say this for a while and then it was gone, right? It's like, it's then it's just when it ends, one by one, it just ends and there is no memo. No one says, oh, by the way, in one week, we're done with this forever. And so you're, you know, I just really want to highlight what you said for everyone. It's like, these are phases and the hard phases, they, most of the time are phases that they end and then you don't get them back. Um, and something I think about a lot too is even every day, you know, even on the hardest days, there were often moments of, I mean, mostly humor. Kids are so funny almost all the time, still are. So even on kind of the worst days, I'll have memories where I was laughing or just mm -hmm. enjoying a, a single moment between tantrums. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I like to sort of think back about that. And I even think back to that 2020, that whole year was so hard. And well, that's so what I want to move ways. to. I want to move to because yeah. now you became the voice of, <laughs> of a lot of mothers um, during COVID. And so, and you, you know, you spent a lot of time writing about that and living it. Yeah. What, what did COVID tell us about this whole institution and lack thereof uh, from policy perspective about motherhood during COVID? 
So I think a lot of people were just getting through the status quo and not really questioning a lot of the assumptions and and pressures that mothers experience. And when all the structures of society fell apart and we realized moms were responsible for kind of everything, educating our children, caring for them, working, you know, I often talk about this moment where um, it was the summer of 2020. I was listening to a conference call on my headphones while switching the laundry over from the washer to the dryer. And my kids were whining in the background because they were hungry and they wanted lunch. And I just felt like uh, my body was one of those Stretch Armstrong yep. dolls that was yep. being pulled in five different directions. And my head was about to pop off. Um, and I think uh, that feeling was, we realized, was just our actual day-to-day distilled. Um, And so I think so many people realize that things that are table stakes in other countries that are as wealthy as the United States, so paid leave, paid sick days, universal health care, child care, more support with child care, we don't have any of those things in the United States. And part of the reason that there is so much pressure on us as individuals to do everything is because we don't have those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think more people made that realization and more people of all political stripes um, and all backgrounds. And I think more people also realize that caregiving is not just a mom issue. It's Mm -hmm. an everybody issue. Um, And I'm not just talking about caregiving of children. Um, I've heard over the years from so many people who caregive for elderly family members, um, and that that is a tremendous amount of work for which there is even less support, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I would argue, than support for parents of young children. Because at least for most people with, you know, I, I think it's a different category when you have a disabled child, um, that's a, a lifetime of, of, you know, really concerted care. But, you know, for most people, um your child's going to get older and they'll be more self-sufficient. But when you have elderly family members that you're giving care for, you don't know Mm -hmm. how long that can last. Um, And you still have to, you know, earn an income. And it's just really a huge stressor. Um, You cite that in 2020, there was 71% of mothers with children under 18 were in the labor force. And that is the year when 1 million mothers were also pushed out of the labor force with COVID. And so, you know, that talk, COVID aside, three fourths of mothers with children under 18 are working. That is a, it seems to me, this is like a new reality that does need to be dealt with on the macro and policy level. Like this is, this is the United States, which looks very different than a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. um, or 50 years ago even. And not much has, not that much has changed from a policy perspective when it comes to childcare and paid leave and all of those things. Yeah. I mean, the good news is even as I was doing edits for the book, two more states passed paid leave, Delaware Mm. and Maryland. And so we do see incremental moves forward. And especially on the state level, there's a lot of folks working so hard and so many activists and politicians who really believe in this as societal good. Um, So I think it's important to honor that incremental change forward, um, yep. even as we can still lament the fact that mm-hmm. we don't have a bunch of the supports that 
uh, many other nations have. I mean, I just was at a book event talking to a woman who um, had been posted in the Netherlands for her husband's job and had her first child in the Netherlands and had her second child in the United States and was just appalled, (laughs) frankly, at the stark difference. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not just paid leave, but after she gave birth, there was a nurse that came for the first five days after birth and then would visit. I mean, it just, can you imagine? I mean, I just think that we also underestimate. It makes me very sad to think about how anxious and stressed American moms feel in those first days of motherhood and how much stress and pain could be alleviated um, if something like that were available and normalized. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to a statistic you said during COVID that made me laugh and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it's the mother father thing. It was like, it was something like, um, not, um, 97%, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was like, or 50% of dads or 97% of dads say that they're handling all homeschooling tasks and only 3% of mothers agree or something, right? It was like, what, what was that disparity? Like dads think like, I got this covered. And the mom's like, no, you don't. I'm going to look it up. So we have it right. Yeah. And it was, uh, uh, it was from my colleague, Claire Kane Miller in the times epic headline, uh, here it is. Nearly half of men say they do most of the homeschooling. 3% of women agree. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was classic uh, right. about perspectives. Um, but that said, yeah. I mean, I, I do think dads have come so far in such a short amount of time in terms of being equal partners in raising kids. And they really want to be. I think that's sort of such a misnomer. And when we talk about this, it's and, and part of the reason we don't have a lot of the supports that we need is it's thought of, oh, just that's a mom thing. Dads just want to be at the office and, and dads want to be fully involved parents. They love their kids too. They want to hang out with their kids. They want to support their wives. Like it's just so false that most yeah. dads don't want to spend time with their children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's multi-layered. Mm. We are confu- a confusing species in a confusing <laughs> society. Um, people are getting, as you point out, most of their health information and parenting information online, right? Mm-hmm. So you talk about anywhere from 75 to 89% of parents like that range look for health information online. However, it also, those online searches are associated with higher levels of anxiety, distress, and worry. So what is your guidance? You have, I mean, from this research, but also in your former jobs in this market space, you know so much about what is posted and what's legit and what's not, and what the angle is. What is your recommendation? I almost feel like, you know, we give our kids, we try to raise our kids to be socially media conscious. We have to do the same thing, I think, for our our fellow parents. I know. Well, the first thing to do, which is uh, I interviewed the psychologist, Elisa Marco, uh, and these are her recommendations. Um, 
For everybody you follow on social media, consider how they make you feel when you look at their recommendations. If they make you feel bad, mute them, unfollow them. You don't need that in your life. Mm. Um, Another good idea is just time boxing the amount of time you spend on social media a day. I think um, abstinence in kind of any public health uh, intervention is usually not successful. So set a timer. Give yourself 30 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever you think you need um, to scratch that itch. In terms of public health information, I was actually, I mean, I had my older daughter in 2012. So Instagram was around, but it wasn't as much of a thing. I did not read any parenting books. I, If I had a question, I talked to my mom or I asked my pediatrician. Mm. And that helped me eliminate so much noise. Wow. Um, and my parents are both retired physicians. So obviously they are not just typical, you know, mom, dad experience, but so many parenting questions are actually common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they are medical, but you know, often they're just talking to someone you trust and whose values you share. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully our parents are people whose values we share though. I know that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and having them sort of talk you down is is worth its yeah. weight in gold. So if there are influencers who you think share your values, that can be very valuable. And there's, you know, a lot of uh, people who are sharing good information on online, but there is also just so much noise. And yeah. even as someone who reports on this, it's sometimes hard for me to dissect the, mm-hmm. the noise and figure out what is this correct? Um, what studies are, is this based on good studies? I mean, that's a huge thing. That's in terms mm-hmm. of scientific literacy. Uh, people will cite studies left and right. Right. A lot of studies are bad studies. They have very small sample sizes. They have no control. They have, you know, they're, they're not randomized controlled studies, which are the gold standard of studies. They don't, they're not replicated. Um, so just because something cites a study, mm-hmm. you have, and, and that who can expect, you can't expect the average parent who's just trying to get through their day no. to part, you know, spend their time reading a scientific study. Like no one has time for that. So I don't no. blame no. any parents for being confused, overwhelmed. It's too much. It's too much. So, I mean, again, my, my uh, approach was quite Luddite. And so I don't know if it's possible, but I, I found it very helpful to reduce my anxiety to yeah. just pediatrician bomb. That's it. I wasn't asking anybody else. I wasn't. <laughs> well, yeah. And so having the fewer, I, I almost think having fewer sources of information can be very helpful. That makes total sense. And I, so I really highlight rev, everyone reduce the noise. That is what's so, that's so important because all of the noise that we live with in all facets of life generally take us away from our inner knowing, our own mm. instincts, and being able to be in touch with ourselves. And um, yeah, and as I think my wife and I made the decision years ago to stop watching the news unless there was mm. something we really wanted, you know, to, to, there was something going on that we wanted to know. And everyone would be like, wait, you guys don't watch the news? How do you know what's going on? And we're like, you know what, 98% of what's on the news just makes us upset and ruins our sleep and increases our fear. And I've never missed anything important that happened in the world. And what I I guess translating that into what is the manageable, optimal amount for everyone is going to be different of parenting information 
so you can manage this level of like overwhelm that happens when a lot of the times the information does make us feel bad. Well, I don't do that or I didn't do it that way or gosh, we didn't have this brain-based parenting thing when I was raising kids. So we didn't know about to focus on regulation over this and that. It's just you can go down the rabbit hole. And so I think this is really wise uh, guidance for everyone. Just try to minimize the noise and reach out when you have a question or you have a concern and, and, and trust yourself. Yeah. I mean, that was something that I, I found with so many folks and it just broke my heart how little they trusted their own intuition. Yeah. Um, and I think it's much harder, especially if your family of origin was, you know, toxic, dysfunctional. So you couldn't trust the, um, examples that were set for you and you really wanted to try to do something different, I really, my heart goes out to parents who are struggling through that because I think that's a really hard situation to be in because if you're trying to break, you know, generational patterns that you see as negative and you feel you want to do things really differently from the way you were raised, it's really hard to be, feel confident in the choices that you're making all the time or, or know that you're doing the right thing. Yes. Okay, Jess, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Are you ready? Yes. All right, here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your child, and or those you love. So my older daughter is very similar to me personality-wise. We're both perfectionistic. We're both very organized. We're, you know, though some of that has positive <laughs> yes. impacts and some of it, you know, Not we so also, much. No. you know, we're somewhat anxious. It's a mix. Um, and so realizing that just because we are similar does not mean we are going to have the same experiences or the same reaction to the experiences. So she is about to enter middle school. I have a lot of fears about her having some of the negative experiences that I had in middle school, making the same bad choices or having the same fears, anxieties, whatever. Always remembering she's her own person. Even though we have these similarities, we're not the same. She's living 30 years later. She's living in a different place. She has different parents. Um, she's her own person. And so being able to really separate uh, myself and my experiences from her and what she's going through makes me feel better just as a human, just knowing I don't have control over what she's going through. And that's great, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um but also being able to see her as her own person um, is so helpful to me as a parent and not assuming right. a negative outcome and not assuming a certain response from her because she is entitled to her own emotional responses to anything that happens. Um, and so just being able to take her as who she is and not projecting some, you know, some negative outcome has been so helpful for me. So important, that separation, that space between us and our kids and where we end and where they start. And also that they're not here to make us feel good and make us feel like good parents and that our whole identity is wrapped up in the outcome of what happens to them. Like that's hard. Yes. Like it takes a lot of conscious, purposeful thinking and behavior 
to achieve that? Well, I think the also the important thing from that is she will have negative things happen to her. She mm-hmm. will, you know, make mistakes and that that's good for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good for me. Did I enjoy living through it? No, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it wasn't ultimately valuable. Um, and so just being able to say like, this is her own path. She will make mistakes. That's good. She will recover from those mistakes. She can be resilient. Um, those are all also such important lessons, I think, for both of us. Yes. Thank you for that moment and that wisdom. And congratulations on this great piece of work, which will impact so many at so many levels, at the personal level, um, at the community level, and I believe at the policy level as well. Screaming on the inside, the unsustainable, excuse me, screaming on the inside, the unsustainability of American motherhood. Just tell everyone where they can find your book and also all of your other writings and works. You can find my book anywhere books are sold. Um, And my work is in the New York Times opinion section. I have many opinions. Um, So you can find it on (laughs) the New York Times website. You can subscribe to my newsletter at the New York Times. uh, And you can often find me in print. So that's more of a mysterious process. Sometimes I'm in print. Sometimes I'm not. Ooh. (laughs) The search is on. Well, Jess, thank you for spending time with us today. And... um, just uh, love the work that you're doing and uh, I will continue to follow as well. Thank you so much for having me. That's it, everyone. I know you have several people that you want to share this episode with to normalize the role of motherhood and the complexities of motherhood and parenthood, not only through the ages, but in today's world, both pre and I won't say yet post-COVID, but still within the emergence of us coming out of COVID. Thank you for being a part of our community. We so appreciate your five-star reviews and bringing other like-minded folks to our group. Do your best to be the person you want to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.